Hello, my name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy at LSU in New Orleans. Um, I'm here today on behalf of the vestibular SIG to talk about, or actually to talk about pediatric re, uh, vestibular rehabilitation with Jennifer Christie. Um, Jennifer's from University of Alabama, and I'll let her introduce yourself further. Okay, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm actually from University of Alabama at Birmingham, and um, I've been here for about eight years, and I was introduced to the wonderful world of vestibular rehabilitation by Dr. Rose Ryan. Um, I was her doctoral student at the University of Miami, and she was doing some interesting work with children who were born with vestibular hypofunction, and they were actually born with bilateral sensory neural hearing loss, severe to profound, and in addition, they a lot of them had um, vestibular hypofunction. So... We developed um, some interventions and piloted the intervention with um, a randomized control trial, which I helped her with, and also developed some clinical tests, which you may have read about in the abstract of the week. Um, one was the dynamic visual acuity test um, for children. So that's how I was introduced to this, this topic. And after I graduated, I was recruited to come to UAB and have been continuing this work here um, in test development and really would like to go on to um, working with the same population and potentially other populations of children who have vestibular hypofunction by developing interventions to improve gaze stability. Great. Um, so, Jennifer, in general, what makes pediatric vestibular rehab different than adults? Um, I'm going to address this question from the perspective of peripheral vestibular hypofunction because we know that a lot of kids have central deficits. You know, kids born with cerebral palsy, kids born with myelodysplasia, um, you know, other other deficits that can affect vestibular structures. But the cleaner population to think about is the peripheral vestibular hypofunction um, population. So. Adult patients, as you know, were typically born with vestibular function and then lost it. So their central nervous system is wired to expect vestibular input for gaze stability and postural control. So when they lose it on one or both sides, their brain has to compensate and adapt to the lack of input, which is what you know we do with our vestibular rehab exercises. But children with peripheral vestibular hypofunction can fall into two categories. Um, some of them who were, some were born with vestibular hypofunction, and then the second group would be those who lost vestibular function as a young child. So in the, in the first category, we know that many children who are born with severe to profound sensory neural hearing loss, so they're born deaf, they also have peripheral vestibular hypofunction for whatever reason. Um, and since they were born with it, they never had typical central vestibular pathways since they didn't have input. So they are wired very differently than adults. The kids with bilateral loss have poor gaze stability, and we've demonstrated that. Um, they have poor DVA. They have poor balance and also delayed motor development. And this is often not picked up by physicians or by ther you know speech therapists because you're really worried about their hearing and their, their um, speech development. Plus, these kids, they don't complain of symptoms or oscillopsia since they don't even know what it's like to see clearly when their head is moving fast. They think that that's normal. So, 
you know, a lot of them are labeled as clumsy children because they don't have the, that vestibular spinal input. Um, they just think that's how they are. Um, but we know that, you know, therapists can help these kids. So that's that first category, the ones who are born with it. And then the kids in the second category, maybe they lost vestibular function on one or both sides. And that could be due to either they had an illness that required vestibular toxic drugs. Um, you know, a lot of kids who receive uh, cisplatin chemotherapy drugs, they lose their hearing. So potentially, you know, that could also affect vestibular function. We don't know that yet. Or, you know, cochlear implant surgery has the potential to cause some damage to vestibular organs um, as well, and that's being done a lot. So these kids, though, seem to be more like adults in their response to vestibular rehabilitation since, you know, they had the, that central wiring. Um, so that's kind of the differences, I guess, in the peripheral um, vestibular hypofunction category. Okay. Great. So besides um, some of the disorders that you mentioned, are there any other common vestibular disorders that you would find in children? Yeah, and um, when we think about peripheral, the peripheral vestibular system, we think about um, severe to profound sensory neural hearing loss, which I've already mentioned. There's another condition called enlarged vestibular aqueduct syndrome, which can cause vestibular hypofunction. Um, not in all kids, and again, not all kids who are born deaf have vestibular hypofunction. There's just a certain percentage that do. Um, Drug-induced ototoxicity, like I mentioned, um, fistula will cause vestibular symptoms. Severe otitis media, Dr. Ryan has found that these kids who had severe otitis media before they received the tubes in their ears have abnormal SOT tests. You know, they look like that they have a vestibular hypofunction, but as soon as they have the surgery, they're, they're fine. Um, so that group, and then, you know, vestibular neuritis, BPPV is very uncommon in children, but it does occur in, you know, a few cases. Um, and then common pediatric disorders that affect the central vestibular system, there's a lot, but common ones are migraine, um, benign paroxysmal vertigo of childhood is in that migraine category. And it presents like BPPV, but it's not BPPV, it's, it's more of that migraine um, attack. There are seizures that can affect the central vestibular system. Um, posterior fossa tumors, you will see that uh, vestibular pathways affected. Neurovascular disorders like AV malformations, aneurysms, even lupus or juvenile rheumatoid arthritis can affect that, the vascular system. Um, and then, you know, you have your central processing disorders. So kids who, they have a normally functioning peripheral vestibular system, their vision is fine, their somatosensory system is fine, but once it gets into the central system, they cannot process it, so they can't produce the right motor output. So you see this in a lot of kids with autism, um, developmental coordination disorder. And then there's just some of these kids who are just kind of labeled as SI kids. You may have heard that before, sensory integration kind of kids who just don't seem to process sensory information. And so the therapy for all three of those groups is, is very different. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, so this actually brings uh, an additional question. So besides what you had mentioned by being able to identify these children as, oh, they're just clumsy or they have coordination problems, how are there any other methods to identify kids with a vestibular disorder, and how can you specifically identify if the vestibular disorder or if their clumsiness is due to a vestibular disorder or just due to their clumsy and maybe have developmental coordination disorder or something like that? 
Yeah, that is sometimes very tough, and you just have to really talk to the parent and listen to their history. Um, you know, is the, is the main thing. If they do have some of these common disorders that affect the peripheral vestibular system, then of course you're going to be doing some of the tests like the head thrust test, the DVA test, and you're you know you're also going to be doing a neuro screen. So you'll be doing um, an oculomotor test, just like you do you know with an adult. Um, you look at their smooth pursuit, you look at their saccades, you make sure that their oculomotor system is fine. Um, then you can go and look at their peripheral vestibular system to see are they able to use their VOR for gaze stability and how do they use vestibular you know, information for balance. Um, and then you definitely want to also look at you know, some cerebellar screening tests, um, the rapid alternating movements, the finger-to-nose test. You want to look at their strength, their tone. So you kind of, you know, you just need to look at the whole picture, um, their sensation, to determine, okay, what sensory systems are they not using or are they using abnormally, which are causing this, this motor problem. Okay. Besides um, what you had previously mentioned, how would your exam be different for a child with a vestibular problem versus an adult? Um, you know, we do the same tests that we do for adults. Um, you just have to make it interesting and fun with stickers, and you have to make it like a game. So we do our oculomotor exam. You know, you put a sticker on your finger and have them follow it. Or, like, even with an infant, you just watch their eye movements as they follow you. Um, we do the headrest test, and I actually just finished a study where we're validating and did reliability in 20 kids um, doing the headrest test because that hasn't been done yet. But one thing that I found with younger kids that helps is if you have them look at a sticker on a mirror, you know, so they're really focused on that, and then you turn their head from behind, and you can watch their eyes. Um, so that works. Um, we also validated the post-rotary nystagmus test based on what they did at Emory with Susan Herdman. I'm just using an office chair and some infrared goggles. So you're spinning them at 0.5 hertz for a minute, and then you put the goggles on and, and time the, the post-rotary nystagmus. You know, that's for people who don't have access to a rotary chair. Um, the clinical DVA is a very good functional test. So the only difference between the adult version and the child version is that you might need to get a chart with symbols. And that is how we validated the test and did the reliability with the um, LEA symbols chart. So it has like a, a square, a circle, and a heart on it um, instead of the letters so that they identify those. And you also would need to have someone pointing to the letters. But kids do really well on that test, even as young as four years of age. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, they do. And, you know, it's the same. You know, more than three lines of difference is the abnormal result. Um, I, you know, I also did the bucket test in this last study, and all of the kids were normal on that. Um, we, the modified cat sieve, you know, a kid with a peripheral vestibular problem is not going to be able to stand on foam with their eyes closed. They all fall. So that's a good test. The SOT you can do with children who are cooperative. And, you know, the functional reach. Um, one thing that we do incorporate is a test of motor development, which you don't do that with adults. Like the Peabody Developmental Motor Scales, too, is a good standardized test for kids through six years of age. Or the BOT, the Brunix-Osoreski Test of Motor Proficiency, second edition, is normed through 21 years. But the BOT, too, is often too hard for even for older kids with 
vestibular problems because the, the tests are, are very difficult. So we sometimes just go down to the Peabody for them. Um, so we do those tests and, um, you know, lab testing usually includes a rotary chair if you have access for the diagnosis and VIMP you can do with children. Um, and some labs will even do calorics on children. I have not tried this yet, but Neil Shepard does it with kids all the time and has success with that. <laughs> <laughs> they would have to be very well-behaved children, I'm sure. Exactly, yes. Um, so that's a lot of good information about examination. How would your treatment differ for a child versus an adult? Obviously, like you said, a lot of the exam stuff about making it fun and making it interesting and framing in play. Other than that, or any specific techniques you have to do that, or any other ideas? Yeah, um, the vestibular rehab is, is very similar. So we base the exercises on the same exercises done with adults, like the times one, times two, the imagined targets, eye-head movement, and the balance exercises, but we have to make it fun. So we use toys, games, you know, their favorite books. Um, so instead of just making them look at a letter, we'll have them, you know, read their favorite book while they're turning their head, um, you know, to have them keep the visual focus and to keep their interest. So just like with adults, the goal is to produce an error signal to promote the CNS plasticity to improve the gaze stability and balance. But just like with adults, you have to think about do they have any function, um, you know, so how, how fast am I going to have them turn their head, how am I going to know if I'm having them turn their head fast enough? And that's a little bit of a challenge because with a child, it's hard to ask them to turn their head quickly enough that it almost goes out of focus. So that's something that we need to work on with future research is to determine how do we get them to turn their head fast enough to get that change, that error signal. Um, the balance exercises are much easier to incorporate into a home program than they are for adults, I would say, since you don't really have to worry about them falling and hurting themselves, you know. Um, kids fall all the time. They have, you know, not as far to fall. <laughs> and so parents can really try more exercises like, you know, for an, an, an adult, you might be hesitant to have them stand on foam at home with their eyes closed, you know, because uh -huh. you might be worried about them falling or doing certain things. But with kids, you know, it's it's not quite as, as uh, scary. Um, you know, and a child is not going to complain of oscillopsia or disequilibrium like an adult. They just don't. So you have to tailor your exam, <clears throat> you know, like I said before, to determine exactly what is deficient and causing it, you know, and every exercise has to have a specific goal, so that's like adults. And, you know, the child has to be interested in achieving that goal or they, they won't do it. So they're not going to just do an exercise for a minute just to do it. You ha They have to, you know, there has to be a goal that they meet <laughs> as they're doing it or something mm -hmm. fun mm -hmm. or a reward like a sticker or a piece of candy or something. I would say sometimes that stuff works for adults as well. Yes. Um, so after treatment, what is, uh, in general, the prognosis and outcomes in terms of both timelines and how much of these children get better and improve with this vestibular rehab? Um, you know, we really haven't figured that out completely yet. We did do a pilot study at a school where we, we worked with groups of children um, and we did, we worked with them for th three times a week for about 30 minutes per session in groups. And we did that for 12 weeks for each group. And we did see improvements. But we don't know if those improvements remained, you know, months and months later. Um, 
you know, or if they needed more more therapy. And that was more for the balance and the motor development exercises. I also worked with four children just working on gaze stability. And, we again, we saw improvement. We worked with them for, again, about 12 weeks. Or actually, I think it was for six weeks for that study. Um, again, three times a week for about 20 to 30 minutes each time on the gaze stability. And we saw improvements, but we... In, in some of the children, but I didn't do a follow-up to see, you know, if, if it stayed. So that'll be what I want to focus on next is looking at the dose. You know, everybody's really um, focusing on, okay, how, what intensity do we need? Um, you know, I think that they need to be doing it every day, you know, just for short periods throughout the day. Um, you know, it needs to be something that probably continues for months, and, you know, we don't really know. We need to do follow-up and longitudinal testing to see, how long do they need to do it before they just kind of start incorporating it into their day? Yeah, that makes sense, too, and especially considering that these kids are growing and changing so that their balance requirements are going to change and their vestibular system is going to get further away from the ground. And all those things is going to really, um, you know, throw off their balance reactions and make it different. Right. And, you know, we want them to be participating in sports and doing what they want to do with their friends. Um, interestingly, there's not been or I don't know of any studies on adults who are born with vestibular hypofunction, you know, to see kind of what they look like. Do they look okay? Did they do okay on their own with substitution? Or would they have benefited from some therapy? Um, so that would be, you know, interesting to look at as well, is to try to find a population of adults who were born with vestibular hypofunction to see what they look like. Yeah, and see if the therapy, you know, would have made any difference. Right, exactly. Um do you need any specialized equipment other than um, the standard vestibular equipment being frenzels or infrared goggles, you know, traditional balance equipment like foam? Um, and what would be the cost of some of these items? Um, you know, the only additional equipment would be if you do work with children, you should have a standardized motor development test. So the two I mentioned earlier, the Peabody Developmental Motor Scales, second edition, cost about $500. The Brunick's Osoretsky test, second edition, costs about $800. And they send you a kit with all the stuff in it and the manuals that help you to score the test. Um, you know, you might want to purchase a vision chart with symbols for the younger kids, which is about $100. Um, you can use the goggles, just like you would with an adult, the foam, the SOT. And one thing that we did for the SOT, just to keep the kids interested, was we took a Polaroid picture of them. I don't even know if they make Polaroid cameras anymore. And we taped it to the wall so that they could watch it develop so that they would stand still. Because a lot of kids, oh, yeah. you know, they get kind of wiggly and they start playing with the platform. And um, Also, on the eyes closed conditions, if you're doing the SOT or the cat sit, you should use blindfold because they'll open their eyes, you know. Um, and then, of course, you have to be there to guard them, just like you would with an adult. The intervention, you just have to be really creative. So, you know, use books, toys that they have at home. Um, in the clinic, you might have equipment for obstacle courses and various ways to work on, like, narrowing the base of support. Um, our study, we, we had a big kind of toy box of all kinds of um, equipment that I would pull out um, that I made. Um, I used just plastic cover like you would if you're painting your walls and cut it and drew pathways so that the kids could walk on, you know, I could put it over a thick mat and they could work on tandem walking or just walking in a narrow pathway. Um, 
we got a big net swing, so we would get head movement by swinging the child in a net swing and make them, you know, I made little Candyland boards and different game boards, and I would say point to the elephant or point to the dog, you know, and finding different pictures that they want to look at and find um, during head movement. So That sounds like uh, a, lot of cre- a lot of creativity on your part. Yes, you have to be very creative. So, um, you know, one thing that we also did that I thought was great was the sit and spin, because these kids don't get dizzy at all. So they could spin all day and not get dizzy. So they get it on sit and spin, and they spin themselves around, and you just flash them a, a picture or a letter as they go around, and they have to tell you what it was, you know, so that you know that they they focused on it. Um, so that was a fun game as well. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Um, so obviously the... I would say the ideal therapist to see these children is someone who is trained both in pediatric and has some experience with vestibular rehab. Um, however, I'm sure there's not that many um, therapists out there with both those dual interests or dual specialties. So if you are in an area and you had to recommend you had a child you know, with a vestibular disorder, what therapist do you think is better equipped to see that child, whether it's someone with vestibular experience who um, works more with adults and doesn't have as much pediatric experience, or is it that pediatric therapist who has, does a great job working with children and knows the outcome measures well, um, but they don't aren't really specific vestibular rehab trained? Yeah, I think that the key ingredient is that the therapist needs to understand the peripheral and central vestibular systems and, and that they know how to assess and treat whatever deficiency the child has. Because there's nothing worse than hearing stories about, you know, kids who are being treated by therapists and you know, they're being spun around, but they're not even asking them to focus on anything. And, you know, that really doesn't do anything unless you're working on habituation, you know. Um, so just knowing what goal you're trying to meet. So that's going to guide the intervention. Um, you know, if, an, if a child has poor peripheral hypofunction, has peripheral hypofunction and poor DVA, you should do some gaze stability um, exercises. Um on the other hand, if they have a good VOR but just can't process, then your the intervention will look much different, and you know you'll be working more on habituation kinds of things. So, you know, peace therapists tend to be very creative in making the adult exercises fun. So I would say, you know, if you had to pick one or the other, that they would go to the vestibular trained therapist, which may be the adult therapist, and then that therapist could maybe consult with a peace therapist to modify the program. You know, I think they should probably work together instead of just having mm-hmm. one or the other, you know. But yeah, I would go with the one who knows the vestibular rehab before. I can see that. Get the uh, best from both worlds. Right, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so if, if someone is interested in learning more information about uh, pediatric vestibular rehab, are there any reading materials, any possible textbooks or articles, or any continuing education courses that you could recommend them um, looking into? Well, I'm very glad you asked that because we have a pediatric competency-based course, which is led by Dr. Rosa Ryan, who does the you know all this wonderful work, and I teach there as well. And Lisa Farrell also teaches in that course. And if you go to, um, if you just go on Google and you type specialty therapy and vestibular, because there's a lot of specialty therapy, but the website is http colon forward slash forward slash campus dot e d u c a d i u m dot com forward 
slash specialty therapy forward slash. <laughs> That's the website. And we have a, a continuing education course, which is um, it's Wednesday afternoon through Saturday at noon. And um, you do take an exam similar to um, the adult vestibular competency course. And that course is in October. And this year it's October 17th through 20th, and it's in Jacksonville, Florida, on the beach. So it's a nice location and everything. Um, you know, a lot of students will go to Susan Herdman's course at Emory before even coming to this pediatric specialty course. That's not, you know, a requirement, but if you go to the Emory course and you go to the other course, you will definitely know your stuff. So, um, you know, that would be another recommendation. And Susan Herdman's book, Vestibular Rehabilitation, we're actually working on a new edition. So we're going to be writing a new chapter, but it has a pediatric um, chapter in it. So those oh, are great. some good resources. Um, you know, we've written a few articles, and there's actually been some, you know, a few more articles coming out. Um, if you just go to PubMed and type pediatric vestibular rehabilitation, you can pull up some articles on that. Great. Um, and is there anything else you, um, in closing that you'd like to talk about or you think that we should know that we didn't get a chance to cover yet? Um, no, I think we covered just about everything. Um, you know, I'm hoping to, to do a lot more work in this area, so just stay tuned and um, definitely got to get that paper out about the, the test. So what I really want to do with my next paper is to you know, based on the work that I've been doing over the past couple of years is to recommend a testing battery for pediatric therapists or any therapist who's working with children on, you know, how to screen for vestibular hypofunction. Yeah, I think that sounds like it would be a very, very clinically useful um, study. Yes. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, and this brings our talk on pediatric vestibular rehab uh, to a conclusion. Hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll Get you next month for our next uh, podcast. Thank you very much.